Hi, and welcome to Com Church Talks. This is our sermon of the day. We pray it will be a real blessing to you. I know you'll be encouraged, challenged, and uplifted by the talk you're about to hear. Praise God. Good morning, church. You know, I once heard a preacher say, he described the words of Jesus, those red letters, as the hot sauce of Scripture. I like that. That's really rich, potent, good stuff. Amen. So, it pays, yes, it pays some time, pays for us to take some time to examine and to apply the words that came from the one who the Bible describes as the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. So, this morning, we'd like to focus on what we're describing as the ultimate red letter, and Michelle will unpack that for us, that little phrase as we go along. And following on from that, we will be also talking about, out of Luke chapter 14, what it costs to be a disciple of Christ. But let's start, if you have your Bibles this morning, by opening them up to Matthew 12, verse 38 to 50. I believe this may be coming up on screen anyway. But we're going to start reading from Matthew 12, 38 to 50. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be for this wicked generation. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So I don't want to show of hands, but I just want to ask you this morning a rhetorical question. <laughs> we did this in the first service, and I won't tell you how many people confess to this. <laughs> but how many of us in here today would... would um, <laughs> How many of us in here today would admit to enjoying sin? No hands needed. It's all right. Okay. We'll come back to that later. 
You'd think that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, when they asked Jesus for a sign, it was a legitimate question. But Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that they were looking not to qualify him as Messiah. Maybe the Jewish leaders were looking for Jesus to perform miracles like heal the sick or feed the hungry or even calm the storm or raise the dead. But all of that they had already seen. Those weren't the signs they were looking for. Or maybe they were looking for signs from heaven, like so many of us do today. Or perhaps, like in the Old Testament times, they were waiting and looking for a sign from heaven, like fire coming down from heaven, or for the parting of the waters. The truth is, they'd already seen the miracles. They'd already heard his teachings. They were just trying to catch Jesus out. But Jesus knew the miracles were not enough. Today, the miracles are not enough. Right now, there could be somebody that comes up here and they have a horrible condition. And they could be healed from that condition. But we can guarantee that there would be somebody who would, sorry, they would attribute that healing to something else like medication or science or maybe the original testimony of this condition was exaggerated. Jesus knew that the signs and wonders would never be enough. The Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to perform miracles on demand like a magic genie. But they had a problem with unbelief. That was their problem. And their unbelief was a choice that they had made. After waiting so many years for their Messiah, waiting and keeping the law, they'd become hardened to the truth of him, the person that was standing in front of him, just because he didn't come the way that they expected. And this is why Jesus, in verse 43, speaks of the evil spirit coming back into the house that had been swept clean and bringing seven more spirits worse than that one. If you only look for signs and wonders, you're open to deception. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24, and I'm reading from the Passion Version, for there will be many imposters falsely claiming to be God's anointed one and false prophets. They will arise and perform miracles and lead astray, if possible, those God has chosen to be his. But you know what? Jesus still obligated them with a sign. The sign of Jonah, his death and resurrection, three days and three nights in the grave. Now, just for a moment, I just want to go on a slight segue. I want to take you on a little journey. When I was a child, I was part of a school choir, and we'd sing at the local town hall for local dignitaries like the Lord Mayor. And one of the musicals that we learnt was Jonah Man Jazz. Yeah? Heard of it? Everyone knows it. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> okay, just me then. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind. But <laughs> this is how I first learnt about Jonah. But as a child, the story and the gruesome details of the Assyrian people were kept from me. Now, okay, you don't have to learn about Jonah Man Jazz, but it, it, it was fun. It was fun. You don't have to familiarize yourself with a story like that. You can just read the book of Jonah and Nahum. But when you read the account, it's very plain to see why Jonah, instead of getting in the boat to go to Nineveh, he got on the boat to go to Tarshish. 
He preferred to be thrown overboard. He would prefer to die than to go and deliver God's message of repentance. Now, I understand why. Because these were brutal people. So, Jonah would prefer God to wipe these people out instead of the Ninevites repenting. But eventually, Jonah did go. And he went with a God's message of repentance to a people that didn't know God. They knew of him because of the stories that had been brought back, but they didn't know him firsthand. And the Bible doesn't say that Jonah performed signs and wonders. He simply brought a message of repentance that caused the nation to turn around. Amen? The Queen of Sheba, when she visited Solomon, she traveled from a long distance, not knowing what kind of reception she'd receive. She came just on hearsay. And you can read the account for yourself in 1 Kings 10. But all her questions, all the questions she had were answered. And the queen found no account that had been brought to her about Solomon to be exaggerated. Now her response was to recognize the giver, the giver who had given Solomon the wisdom and the wealth and to worship God. The Jewish teachers and leaders didn't realize that the wisdom, the wealth, the divinity and the supernatural ability that stood in front of them greater than the king and his riches, greater than all the wisdom, more powerful than the prophet's message. These leaders were worse than the pagans of Nineveh. Today, we have been given the greatest sign, the word of God, and we're able to read it in so many different forms. We really have no excuse. The Old Testament, it points to Jesus. And Jesus points back to the Father. If we are disciples, we must always point to Jesus. Amen? Does anyone agree with that? We can imagine ourselves to be characters in the Bible, and so often we do. Characters in the Old Testament, such as Joseph overcoming rejection from his family and injustice from his employers. Esther, who was born for such a time as this, to deliver our people from genocide. Jacob, Samson, Moses, the list can go on. And yeah, these characters put in the Bible for us to learn something by and to encourage us. But really, they're a type of Christ. And it tells us about who Jesus is as much as it tells us about who Jesus is not. I'll give an example. Jesus wasn't a murderer. But yet he came to set us free from the oppression of sin. Yeah? Jesus wasn't a deceiver like Jacob. But Jesus was a stone that the builders rejected. That same stone that Jacob built built God's house on. Or a liar like Abraham. But God established a new covenant through Jesus. The shedding of blood in Eden was not enough to cover our sins. It could never be enough. So God established the law for us to live by. The law told us what to do, but didn't give us the means to do it. So we, as a people, we created legalism. God instructed the priests, 
but the priests became corrupt themselves and there was not enough animals to cover the sins. So the judges were appointed. But all through the book of Judges, you can read it yourself. It says, everyone did right in their own eyes. God's people wanted to be like every other nation. So they asked for a king, to be led by a king. But the kings led them away from God and eventually ended up dividing the nations. None of these events led to the saving of humanity. And none of these events were a surprise to God. So you may ask, you may ask, you may not, why did he allow this to happen? Well, God had to build a picture for us to understand why we need to be saved from sin. We know that sin eventually kills. And maybe it should come with its own health warning. I don't know if there's anyone in the media team that wants to do a health warning for sin. (laughs) The good news is, a way has already been made for us. A way to make... A way in order for us to be in communion, in relationship with a God that's holy. There's nothing, there's nothing that you've been through or nothing you've done that God is surprised about or disqualifies you from making a commitment today. There are those, and Jesus warned about them, there are those who orchestrate signs and wonders and profess to doing God's work but their emphasis is not on Jesus. They don't point the way back to Jesus. Instead, their emphasis is on the peripherals of the gospel. Health, wealth, they preach a different gospel. We've already been warned about a different gospel. Uh, Please don't misunderstand me. In this church, we believe in healing. We believe in deliverance. And we should contend for that. If you have a need, yes, we will pray with you. Yes, we will pray for you. But please don't lose your perspective. Don't lose your eternal perspective. If anyone believes that they have the mental agility or the spiritual ability to achieve good health or wealth, or that you can somehow manipulate God into giving you what you want, Today, I want to set the record straight. Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. And I know that's a hard message, but he really didn't die to make us comfortable. And if anyone believes that that is the gospel message, you've set an idol up for yourself. He's a good father, and he knows how to give his children good gifts. And whether or not you've been blessed with that new car, that perfect life, that new job, or whatever you've been desiring, maybe you should ask the question, how can I best serve you, Lord? Your lack of plenty, your lack or your plenty, does not disqualify you from the great commission that God has given us. Jonah didn't wait until he had a private jet or designer clothes before he brought the truth to Nivea. 
Never yet. I've said it again. To Nineveh. See, that's how I loud about it as a child. Nivia, as a child. Maybe that thing that you desire would be the very thing that leads you to destruction. So God, in his mercy, he holds it back from you. The scripture continuously warns us about believing half-truths or exchanging a truth for a lie. The hunt for signs and wonders will make you lose your perspective because it will make you set your heart on this life. It draws your attention to this life. But if you are risen in Christ, set your affections on things above. Mm. The choice is to be conformed by this world or be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, at the start of this message, I ask you a question. Who would confess to enjoin sin? And if you're honest, whether you're a believer or not, to some degree, we all enjoy it. Our flesh craves sin. But God is holy and cannot abide sin. So the ultimate red letter day for every human being that was, that is, and will ever be, was the day that Jesus paid the price for us. He paid the price of our debt our debt of sin. The plan was always that we should be in relationship with the Father. But he no longer sees us. When we accept Christ, he no longer sees us as Michelle's sin, as Wesley's sin. He sees us as Michelle Holy, Michelle Jesus, Wesley Holy. He gives us a new name, a new identity. But what's the cost of following him. What's the cost of being a disciple? In verse 46, Jesus took the opportunity to explain that only those that accept the will of the Father are part of his family. When you become a follower of Christ, you enter into a new and ever-growing supernatural family. It goes beyond blood ties and biology. You've only to look around you to see the diversity that there is. And this is not by accident, this is supernatural. Laying aside everything that you have and picking up the cross to follow him. In Luke 14, verse 25 to 35, it says, large, cries were, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turned to them, they said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you builds a tower, but won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation, but you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, saying, the person built it wasn't able to finish it. Or suppose a king was about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send out a delegation while still a long way off 
and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for soil nor manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Amen. So, we are all, let's make no mistake, we are all called to be disciples. Amen. A passion that the Lord has put into the hearts of Michelle and I over the years is to see believers grow and mature in their faith in Jesus. Now, let me ask by asking you this question. There's a lot of nervous looking faces around staring at me right now. It's all right. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous by this. It'll be all right. The question is this. What is the cost that you are prepared to pay to be a disciple of Jesus compared to the cost that must be paid? There is undoubtedly fulfillment in serving the Lord, but it requires a high price to follow him. You don't have to be up on stage, you know, in some kind of frontline ministry. The Bible describes us all as one body, met with many parts. 1 Corinthians 12, we're all doing different things. But each and every one of us who professes that Jesus is our Lord and Savior must recognize that we are all called to, be served, to serve in some way. It's in some way, shape, or form as disciples. At some point, sooner rather than later, in our walk with God, we have to ask the questions, what has God called me to do? And what am I actively doing to achieve my calling? Now, I get it. You know, life has a way of getting in the way, doesn't it? We all have to earn a living. The bills need to be paid, you know, and so on and so on. How many of us agree that Jesus knew the will of the Father. Uh, we agreed on that this morning. Amen. He knew what he had to do. But even for Jesus himself, stuff happened. We read back in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus was ministering to the crowd. But yet his family wanted to see him. But notice that didn't stop him from his purpose at that moment. In the story, Jesus' family represents for us the legitimate cares in our lives like the stuff I've just been talking about. You know, you can read that scripture in isolation and think that Jesus didn't care for his family. I'm sure Jesus loved and cared for his family, for his earthly family. But there, are, there comes moments in our lives when we must not allow distractions, no matter how legitimate, no matter how innocent it may be, to hinder the task or calling that God has for us. Amen? Some of us need to hear that, need to be reminded of that this morning. Some of us have a, uh, a task to refocus on what takes priority in our lives because God comes first. Amen. In Luke 14, 25, the scripture says that large crowds was traveling with Jesus. Jesus knew that most of them were not committed. Why were the crowds following Jesus? They followed for different reasons. Jesus caused a lot of excitement wherever he went, didn't he? We read that. Some wanted to see the healing and deliverance. Uh, some wanted to see miracles, signs, and wonders. Some wanted to sit around, his, uh, sit under his profound teaching and wallow in that. You know? 
Some even hoped that he would be a Messiah that would deliver the people of Israel from the yoke of Roman rule. Just like today, people have different ideas of what Jesus is about. Of course, Jesus welcomed everyone, didn't he? He, he, he didn't turn away anybody. And the same thing applies to us. People come to church for different reasons today. However, whatever the reason why you're in church today, we welcome you. Amen? But I've watched our fellowship grow over the years, and praise God that's continuing. But I pray, however large Calm Church gets, let's not become a crowd. Let's be disciples, amen? Let's be useful parts of the body, for that is what Christ expects of us. We're privileged to serve the King of Kings. We are in for a reward that's greater than anything the world has to offer. Paul writes in Philippians 3.14, and this is a word that applies to us as disciples of Christ. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. James 1.25 says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law, i.e. the gospel, that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. My goodness, there's a, there's a whole sermon in that just one scripture alone. We haven't got time to unpack that today. But God will show you what he wants you to do. When you know your God, you will find your purpose, and he will make a way for you. Amen? Get on that purpose, church. Amen. Jesus demands commitment. In our church, I'm glad to say, we have many people who are committed. You know, they don't shy away from it. You see, a crowd will gather and disperse, and it comes to nothing. But it's only disciples that will leave a legacy for Christ. Amen. See, the group that came out here, they're about to go to Africa, that's discipleship yeah. in action. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the legacy of that in the years to come. Amen. Coming back to our loved ones, in that portion of Scripture in Luke 14, when Jesus talks about hating members of your family, on the surface, that might appear contradictory. Jesus is all about love, right? Uh, thank you, Andrew, and one or two others. <laughs> Jesus is all about love, right? Amen. Absolutely he was. So where was Jesus going with this? He's certainly not saying that you should separate or neglect your family. Please don't do that. We at Calm Church, we're not promoting that. You know, only cults behave like that. It was Jesus using hyperbole or figurative language to get his point across. What Jesus really is saying is that by following him, no earthly tie must take precedence over being in relation with him, walking in obedience to him. We have to lay down our own selfish desires and ambition when we walk in selfless love instead. Matthew 6, says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. In that verse, the key word is to seek. That's the key phrase right there. It involves a spiritual workout on our part. Amen? Something our carnal nature is inclined to run away from. Discipleship won't just come on us. It starts with building a relationship Amen. with our Heavenly Father. Yeah. It starts in our souls. As the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 10-5, to 5, 
It's where we need to take captive every thought and imagination and make it obedient to Christ. Through prayer, through study of the Word, so that your spirit man may grow. Because yes, the enemy will try to bring arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We must be in a position to demolish those. Amen? Romans 8, 6 says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Jesus requires our exclusive loyalty. So when we grow to love him the most, the more we demonstrate the love of Christ to others. You know, in Colossians 2.10, it says, We are brought into the fullness of Jesus. In other words, we grow to love what God loves and hate what God hates. When that mindset of Christ is developed in us, we cannot help but to live our lives for others as well as for Christ. The more you demonstrate the love of God, how positively people around you respond to that. Have you ever found that? Amen. So carrying the cross, living the life of Jesus involves living a life of selflessness. What does it mean when Jesus said in verse 27 of Luke 14 to take up your cross? Victims were often whipped before they hung. They were hung or nailed to the cross. So the cross speaks of persecution. As disciples, we will experience some form of persecution. You may get opposition from the very people who are closest to you. It says that uh, there will be trouble ahead, but we have to stand strong and be willing to endure what may come up ahead. Because when we endure, we will be victorious. Amen. For the Bible says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Following him in living Christ-like, that is, walking in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The cross was a symbol of death. So it is by taking up the cross, we have to put to death our own selfish plans and desires to follow him. We can only do that if we're plugged into Jesus. If we're connected to the vine, as Rob was talking about a few weeks ago, Rob McKinney, in John 15, he said, Jesus said, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. You will bear, not, not you may, you will bear much fruit in your life, in your life with Jesus. What is some of that fruit? Right living, great relationships, solid marriages, demonstrate an integrity to all you do, in all you do, without even having to think about it, showing the love of Christ. When you do all these things and, and more, that's what points the world to Jesus. Amen? What comes out of Luke 14, loud and clear, is that being committed to Jesus is going to cost you something. It may be time, helping someone, building and maintaining relationships. It may cost you in monetary terms even. In some extreme cases, it may cost you your life, but be prepared to count the cost. Verse 28 talks about building a tower. Let's understand that God is building his kingdom, and if it's not, you know, and it's not bricks and mortar, but it's one containing souls. And we are called to be the laborers. We all have our parts to play, but it's important for us to apply ourselves to the part of the build that we are called to and what the cost will be. The only way we can be spiritually wealthy to meet that cost is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? 
Paul writes in Philippians 2.16, holding out and offering to everyone the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to rejoice greatly because I did not run my race in vain nor labor without result. That was from the Amplified Version, by the way. Failure to count the cost of following Christ results in an incomplete life. Holding fast to that word of life, as it says in Scripture, is part of the solution to finishing one's life successfully. Verse 31 talks about the king estimating war. For yes, we are in a spiritual war, and the king has called us up for military service. Look at it that way. You know, to use an earthly example, in World War II, we had two opposing sides, didn't we? We had the Allies, and we had the Axis powers. That's Germany, Japan, and Italy. But a whole load of other countries declared themselves neutral. That didn't help with the defeat of Nazism. Sometimes one has to take up arms and fight. But I say all that to illustrate further that in our spiritual warfare, there is no sitting on the fence. Jesus said, who is not with me is against me. Because Satan is out to kill, seek, and destroy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Scripture says. It's against spiritual forces. We must be willing to be driven to triumph over the devil, the world, and even our own carnal human desires. We talk about the cost, but the good news today, church, is that we've already had a down payment on that. In the grand scheme of things, we only have a minute part to pay in comparison. Let's be thankful that King Jesus has already counted the cost for us. The battle's already been won. It was won 2,000 years ago. He died on that cross and rose again, which means all you have to do is to walk in obedience and serve him. We are already an army walking in victory, amen? amen? How much more infinitely more so than the Allied armies when they marched through the ruins of Berlin in 1945? And as we're drawing to a close, um, we're... We invite the, uh, the, the worship team to come back onto stage now. So finally, I'm going to talk about losing our saltiness. As disciples in Christ, Jesus, uh, it describes us, he describes us as the salt of the earth. Verse 34 and 35 talks about losing our saltiness. Still losing its saltiness. You know, I actually tried that. I got some salt and put it in a saucer. I left it out for a few days to see if it would lose its saltiness. A few days afterwards, I tried it compared to the salt I left in the packaging. And do you know, it did. It really did. You know, because I'm a bit sad like that, you know. <laughs> so what do you think about that? Apart from, Wes, you need to get a life. <laughs> like salt, when it's not left out, Christians bring flavor into the spaces we occupy. The thing about salt is that the thing about salt that's lost its flavor is that while it may look the part, it's lost its effectiveness. Let's not just be Christians that only look the part. Amen. If we lose our basic nature, our God-given usefulness, then we are unhelpful to the kingdom and God's work in the world. This message, this message is a harsh one in places, but one we need to hear. Living as kingdom people in our time is crucial. Crucial to our world. Crucial to our discipleship. We are called to surrender all to Jesus. 
to be used for His work in the world. To do anything less is to lose our saltiness. A few years ago, I bought Wesley a red letter experience voucher for his birthday. And unfortunately, it had an expiration date on it. And um, Wesley missed the expiration date. Shame it's on okay. me. It's okay. I'm over it. I'm over it. It's okay. <laughs> the red letter that Jesus came to deliver to us also has an expiration date on it. But the difference is nobody knows when that is. We know that when he comes, he will receive his bride and then the red letter will expire. You may have at some point verbally accepted Christ but never entered into a relationship with God. I ask you today to open that red letter. Talk to the Father. Ask him what he wants you to do. Don't allow your heart to become filled with doubt and unbelief. Maybe Jesus hasn't delivered the way you expected or the way you wanted and you've followed another gospel, whether it is unwittingly or knowingly, because it agrees with the way that you think things should be. God's not angry with us because of what Jesus done on the cross. He's not angry with us. Or maybe you've allowed stuff to creep in and, and become your focus instead of God. That could be a hobby or your job or your house, investments, another person, or maybe even yourself. You can fill in the gaps. The list goes on. Or maybe you're in the place where you've never made a commitment to Christ. And today you'd like to accept the gift, the ultimate gift of salvation. If you'd like to come, we'll pray with you. We'll pray with you to accept the gift of salvation. There is nothing that you've said, nothing you've left unsaid, nothing you've done or left undone that God cannot forgive. He simply asks you to accept salvation, to accept this red letter. John 3 verse 16, I know prayer said it last week, but it's worth saying again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today is a day of acceptance. Today is a day of repentance. Thanks for listening to Com Church Talks. We'd love to hear from you and you're welcome to any of our Sunday services or midweek comms. For more information or to get in touch, visit our website at www.comchurch.org.uk or find us on Facebook. God bless.